This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. In a moment, you'll hear my conversation with John Casamitidis. John and I have known each other for a long time. He's been a remarkable man, remarkable career. Born in Greece, came over here at the age of six months. I think you'll find this conversation enlightening on many fronts. But first, as I look at the week ahead, here's what to expect. More fallout from the Democratic debates of the past week. Who's up, who's down? Despite what pundits may say, Biden came up because he didn't look like he was a mummy. He actually had some verve, even though he was attacked on all fronts. But continue to expect more grim news from Hong Kong. That situation is explosive and doesn't look like it's tamping down at all. And China, will China do a trade deal? I'm beginning to think perhaps not. They may think they can wait out Donald Trump. But as the president said, that will be a mistake. But sometimes you only learn from making mistakes. Well, today we have a special guest, John Casamitidis. John, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Well, you have a biography, which we're going to go over, that would have delighted Abraham Lincoln. You came here as a six-month-old baby with your parents, only child, and you understood from an early age the need for hard work because in those days, if you came here, your relatives had to guarantee that they were going to be able to take care of themselves. I blame my father for not being able to run for president. He was six months late. <laughs> the country's lost. My two grandfathers came here in 1913, and uh, they were looking for the streets paved with gold. But it took 100 years for our family to found it. I finally found it. <laughs> well, you didn't uh, find it. You created it. That's yes, the you're right. But you uh, had challenges from an early age. When you uh, were a youngster, they spoke Greek at home, no English, and then you had to go to kindergarten and you did not know a word of English. English was my second language. And I was fully fluent in street Greek because of my parents. And then uh, through my five inch Emerson television set, I learned how to speak English, uh, watching Howdy Doody and all those good shows. You must have come up with some interesting phrases. <laughs> but you uh, worked uh, as a kid. You went to a Brooklyn Tech. And one of the things you did uh, before you went in the uh, supermarket business was, interestingly, you had an internship with Congressman William Fitz Ryan, one of the most then liberal members of Congress. Describe the internship and then the fact that he gave you an appointment to West Point. Well, I didn't know, I did not know anything about liberal. I did not know anything about conservative in those days. I was 14 years old, and uh, I knew that uh, I respected him. He was a congressman. I had a lot of respect for him, and I worked very hard for him, doing whatever he needed me to do in his office. And um, uh, when I was 17, uh, he gave me the congressional nomination for West Point. But you decided instead to uh, study engineering at NYU. My mother cried. My father yelled. I was an only child, and they didn't want to see me go away. So I respected their wishes, 
and stayed domestic and went to NYU and came home every night. So describe the circumstances of your uh, coming to uh, going in the supermarket business. You had an uncle and a cousin, and you were working there, and uh, they didn't get along very well. Well, I went to work. My, my mother got me a job. Uh, I was all set when I graduated Brooklyn Tech to sit on the couch and watch television the whole summer. My mother went to a friend of hers. Uh, we called him cousin, but he wasn't really a cousin. He got me a job working in the local superette. And my mother threw me off the couch and says, you got a job, go to work. And I was getting paid $1.10 an hour. And the, the reality of what $1.10 an hour was, I wanted to learn how to drive. And driving lessons were $27 an hour. So I had to work for 25 hours to drive to pay for one driving lesson. And so you probably learned about taxes. With taxes taking uh, money out of that $1.10, you probably had to work 30 hours to get probably <laughs> driving lesson. But uh, your family came with uh, nothing. Your father started as a busboy, so uh, work was imbued to you at an early age. But now you also had your first eye for a real opportunity. You're working at the Superette. The uh, uncle and the and uh, the cousin did not get along very well. Not well, I learned. You learn early in life. When partners make money, they always love each other. When partnership doesn't make money, they yell at each other. So they weren't making any money. They were yelling at each other. And uh, Tony came to me. That was the uh, cousin, the, the younger one. Yes. He came to me and says, I don't want to argue. I don't want to have arguments in the family. You've got to take over my half of the business. Here, sign these 10 notes, $1,000 a piece. $1,000 a piece? I didn't even know if I could make $1,000 to pay him. And it was 10 notes times $1,000. And I went to work in the store with his uncle. And me and his uncle never had one argument. We started making money. You exhibited diplomacy at an early age. <laughs> I learned, uh, you know something? I learned leadership when I went to Brooklyn Tech, and I learned diplomacy dealing with all my vendors and uh, relatives at an early age, and that really helped. So you had 50% of the business, and eventually, uh, how did you get the 100%? Well, it was a matter of fact, we were starting to earn uh, $1,000 a week each, and in... 1968, that was a lot of money. and You were a miracle worker. When, when it came time to graduate uh, college, I could go to work as an engineer for $129 a week before taxes or work in the supermarket for 1000 a week. I chose to work in the supermarket. So describe, you were at NYU, you're eight credits short of graduation, and you broke the news to your parents that you were going to go to work, not get the diploma, and this time you went your own way. Describe and they how that called happened. me and they yelled and they screamed and they hollered and they, my mother cried. We sent you to the university to become a Hamali. A Hamali was a Greek Turkish word for people that were carrying crates on their back. So she thought you were going down instead of I, up. I, she thought I was 
specializing in being a Hamali. Now, one of the things you uh, did was a great name. How did you come up with uh, the name Red Apple? I wanted a, a name that was synonymous, all-American name, synonymous with apple pie and vanilla ice cream. And so we called it Red Apple. And you started to uh, create other stores. By the age X. of 23, 24, I uh, had 10 stores, and we almost were making a, almost a million dollars a year. And because I started accumulating mentors, and every time I speak to people, I say mentors are very important to young people. And all, most of my mentors were all Jewish because the whole food industry was Jewish. And they put their arm around me, and I learned from them. And I learned a great deal from them. One of them was Sam Stein. And I respect Sam, and I love Sam. Sam Stein was uh, uh, a lawyer, Stein, Rosen, and Nordstein. He was my lawyer then. And he owned Filigree Foods, our wholesale grocer. So every time I wanted to open a new store, Sam will call the controller, uh, Soretta, and say to him, give John more money, he wants to open another store. I did, I opened another store. He did more business for the wholesale business. And Sam Stein was brothers of Lou Stein, who was chairman of Food Fair at that time. And that became useful 10, 15 years later. With where Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman bought Pantry Pride, and they sold me all the supermarkets in Florida that were the old Food Fair's Pantry Prides. Amazing. Now, as you uh, well know, there's nothing tougher than the food business. You are phenomenally successful, but uh, describe how you learned that the big money was in real estate. Well, I learned that in New York City especially, uh, no matter how successful you had a, a supermarket or a retail operation, if you didn't control the real estate, when, when the lease was up, the landlord was king. Now, wanting to be king someday, I ended up buying, using the excess cash flow from the supermarket business and buying all the real estate where our stores were in. And this was 1977. I was too stupid to know that we were in a recession and the real estate market in New York was in the sewer because we were controlling the real estate we were buying by our supermarkets, and our supermarkets were doing well. And I would borrow money from the supermarkets, and before the end of the year, I would borrow money from Chemical Bank at that time. And Nicknamed Chemical Bank. Yes, and they would take, I would take the money from Chemical Bank as a mortgage and pay back the money I borrowed from the supermarkets to buy the real estate. And we did that for about five consecutive years. So you uh, exhibited uh, great foresight, because at the time, people thought New York City was uh, doomed to uh, bankruptcy. It was doomsday. And then uh, one of my other mentors, Irving Rosenbaum, I would sit with him on Thursdays, and he would say, you're doing the right thing, John. And one day you're going to wake up, you're going to find out you're rich. And all that real estate we bought, maybe we spent $5 million, $6 million, $7 million, 
1977, 78. When I woke up in 1980 and uh, the market turned around, all of a sudden, that real estate was worth $100 million. So you expanded again in business. You, you always wanted to fly, and you went into two aspects of the, uh, we might call the airline industry. Describe first buying your first jet and learning how to lease it. I really wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, not West Point. And I always wanted to learn how to fly an airplane. So I started flying an airplane on two, after, two afternoons a week, and then I wanted to buy a jet. So the first jet I bought was uh, November 44 Romeo Delta. That was the call letters. 44RD was a citation jet, and it belonged to Roy Disney. That's what the RD was for. And I hired my first jet pilot, guy named Jim Jacobs. Jim Jacobs went on later on, well, we'll tell the story, to run NetJets, running 800 airplanes and selling out to Warren Buffett for 50 million, not bad for a pilot. Uh, and, but we started with one jet, Atlantic City started opening up and we started servicing the casinos because if you lived in New York or Philadelphia, they brought you into the casinos by limousine. We said to the casinos, we'll bring them in from a 500-mile radius by corporate jet. Make them feel important, make them lose more money. And we became very successful. We built that business up to 48 corporate jets. And I used to fly them all. I had 4,000 hours when I quit. And... We sold it then to Santuli, which was, it started the beginning of NetJets. And Jim Jacobs stayed with him, and that's when they went on to uh, do NetJets and sell out to Buffett. But, later, but people knew I, was, I loved airplanes, and Nelson Happy in 1983 came to me and sold me Capital Airlines. You went in the airline business. And we went in the airline business. So I was, these headquarters were in Smyrna, Tennessee. Just outside of Nashville? Right. Nashville was a great, a great town, great city. And I would get to the office on, uh, on, in the morning, and there was three different reasons. The airline would not fly that day, and I had to solve all three reasons by 10 o'clock. And we survived for a few years. But then we saw the handwriting on the wall when People's Express, the biggest fraud uh, of those days, entered our markets. $49 to Miami, $99 to Los Angeles. We couldn't even put fuel in the airplane for that. So I had a partner at that time. I said to him, you know, time to sell. If we can't even put the fuel in the airplane for that price, time to sell. We sold it to Nick, Senator Nick Nagaris of Puerto Rico, majority leader of the Puerto Rican Senate. And he wanted to use the airline just for Puerto Rico because he owned the old San Juan Hotel and the old Americana Hotel. And we sold it to him, kept the airplanes as collateral. He was financed by Drexel Burnham of Puerto Rico. 
and off we go. Well, six months later, machine kaput. The airline goes bankrupt, and we go to bankruptcy court to uh, recover our airplanes because we kept the airplanes as collateral. And we get on the way to bankruptcy court, the same trustee that had the Lives airplanes Pennsylvania. The also court. had the oil company that had filed bankruptcy. I went to, I went to bankruptcy court to, to, to recover our airplanes. I ended up buying an oil company. I was very sad because I was in Nashville. I was running a worldwide business, the whole world. And I had to come back to New York to run a couple of supermarkets. You're and probably the only man in history who thought coming back to New York was, a, was, was going down in the world and you were depressed and bored. <laughs> and within, within 12 months, we bought the oil company, United Refining. We bought Pantry Pride Supermarkets from Ron Perlman. And we bought Christides from the Thompson Brothers of Southland. So I found some excitement. And what do we use for money? Our credit lines at Bankers Trust because of our real estate. We're able to buy Pantry Pride. We're able to buy uh, uh, Christides. We're able to buy United Refining. And also Chemical Bank at that time helped out. And uh, United Refining was in bankruptcy. We go to bankruptcy court, or we go to the creditors committee, and the uh, and the guy at the Chase Manhattan Bank was the head of the creditors committee. Says, "Mr. Katzmatiz, what what the heck do you know about running an oil company?" I said, "Mazzola oil, Wesson oil, crude oil. It's all oil." <laughs> he didn't appreciate that, but I proved to him within 90 days because I took over as CEO of the oil company. You paid, what, $6 million? That's what I paid for the company stock. And that Bankers Trust lent me $6 million to buy it. And I proved to him, in one month, we made $7.5 million. Not bad for a bankrupt airplane. Now, uh, and we uh, only owed him $100 million. Describe the marketing campaign you did when you uh, sold the gasoline made from the oil, that the oil was homegrown, North American. Well, we used that. to buy all our gas, all our crude oil from North America, from Canada. We're one of Canada's biggest importers of crude oil through our pipelines. And, and uh, you know, going back to the supermarkets, remember apple pie and, and vanilla ice cream? I came up with a marketing campaign that our oil, is made from 100% American oil, American crude oil from Canada, and made by American workers in, in Pennsylvania. And we came up with a marketing campaign. Our gasoline is 100% American oil. And we doubled and tripled our sales, and we were very successful because those are the times where Saudi Arabia was not so good to us, Venezuela was not so good to us, and people appreciated buying American oil. And you also got 300 convenience stores with this transaction? Buy one oil company, get 360 convenience stores for free. <laughs> Sounds like a good deal. But on uh, the real estate side, you mentioned uh, buying when others didn't. Um, one of the things you did uh, was uh, go into Brooklyn 
when people thought Brooklyn back then, decades ago, was not the hot spot that it is today. What drew you to Brooklyn buying those, uh, the, that real estate on Myrtle Avenue? As you know, I looked at a good deal. I went to Brooklyn Tech High School, which was only six city blocks from Myrtle Avenue. That area was always busy, but it was a tough area. Very, very tough. But how can you buy three city blocks in a busy area for $600,000? I just wrote the check, kept my mouth shut. Among the things you've done were three projects there. We built Na- four buildings there. First one you named after the Andrea, Andrea, after then, your daughter, and you wanted to do your son, but your wife Margot said you got to change the name a little bit. Well, we, did, we couldn't, couldn't call it the John. Nobody wants to live in the John. Nobody <laughs> wants to live in the John. So we said, how about in Italian, John is Giovanni. So we called it the Giovanni. And, uh, and then we built another building called the Margot. And the last building we built on Myrtle Avenue was the Eagle. The, I, got, I got nothing named after me. What? I should learn from Trump. Trump names everything after himself. <laughs> well, uh, the Eagle, though, wasn't just a project. Describe the architecture, very unique architecture. I always wanted to build buildings that I was proud of. I learned that from early in life. I wanted to always live in a wow building where you look at the building and say, wow, I want to live there. And the Eagle, we made it so beautiful, it was a wow building. You you used an unusual architect. Well, yes, we did. Uh, And um, uh, we now are building twin towers on Coney Island, right on the beach. And we want to build three more buildings in Coney Island if we can get the the right permits and the right uh, deals, zoning from from the city. So I've I've told the city, which is true, I'm either going to spend the next $300 million or billion in Coney Island, or I could spend it in Florida, which is a growing state too. So we have a choice. Having the foresight first uh, with Brooklyn, then with Coney Island, which was a an area until recently seen as having a, a past but not much of a future. Um, one of the things uh, that made Coney Island, I guess, available at a cheap price was transportation. In Brooklyn, you had subway stations nearby, but one of the solutions you, have uh, I think, have come up with is uh, shuttle buses, but shaped after San Francisco cable cars. Well, it's going to be uh, called trolleys. The Coney Island trolley playing the appropriate music for Coney Island, not the San Francisco tune for San Francisco, and we're going to charge a nickel, but if you don't have the nickel, we'll let you slide. Great, great marketing. So uh, you've uh, gone in a lot of other businesses, and including the jewelry business. Entrepreneurs always uh, never, never, a baseball player never hits a thousand entrepreneurs. What did you learn from that experience? That uh, a nice Greek kid should not be in the jewelry business. <laughs> so what I was only six percent Jewish. <laughs> you had you had your genetic testing done. Yes. <laughs> so uh, one of the areas, though, uh, you're again trying uh, trying being foresighted is uh, 
going into medicine, pointing out that there's nothing more personal than health. And if you come up with something, this is truly recession resistant. Describe your forays into medicine. I believe we're making a lot of investments into medical type situations. And I believe that the future, everybody wants to live longer. Uh, and our creator never gave us the manual of how to fix our bodies. So we have to learn slowly. And between stem cells and DNA, et cetera, et cetera, uh, we are learning how to fix our bodies better. And um, uh, I think medicine over the next 20 years is going to be the hot investment. Uh, and it's never going to go out of style. People will spend whatever they have to spend to live another five or 10 years. So you're going in all aspects, medicine, medical devices, anything that makes us better. Yes, and uh, we recently uh, uh, were going deeper into media. Uh, we brought WABC Radio, who I grew up with, and it was the number one station growing up. Describe the broadcast reach of WABC. It's phenomenal. Well, it's a clear channel, 50,000 watts. It goes back to the 1930s when the government wanted to be able to communicate with their citizens. So at night, uh, WABC reaches Miami, Kansas City from New York to Minnesota. It goes halfway through the country, and it's, it's a great asset. And I describe buying that asset for the price I paid for it, similar to the price George Steinbrenner paid for the Yankees and Donald Trump paid for Mar-a-Lago. So how did you get it? This great station, only $12.5 million. They have a lot of Well, they, first, they're losing money. So I have to absorb the losses as I turn it around. Uh, so I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to write the check. And uh, it's a great asset, and it's an asset worth saving. You're looking at other stations, too. There are others. When I did this deal and, and the word got out, I must have had 100 phone calls. So you're, again, treading in waters that others fear to tread in. Well, I think media and, and radio and television is here to stay. You might listen to your radio through your computer in the future, and you might watch your television through the, your computer in the future. But I do that all the time. You know what I do? At night, I'll get up at 1 o'clock in the morning, Review my emails because I'm 400 emails behind. I get 400 emails a day. But in the background, I'd be listening to the radio or watching television on my other set of computers. And one of the points you make is that uh, you're going to try to bring back the distinction between news and opinion. I think it's so. When me and you, Steve, were growing up, Walter Cronkite told the truth. 92% of the American people believed Walter Cronkite. Whether he was telling the truth or not, they believed him. Now, media, nobody believes anybody. And I believe that, that the truth has to be spoken. And if you're, you're talking about news, you've got to be telling the truth. News is the real news. If you want to speak your opinion, that's fine. But let people know it's your opinion. You, uh, though... Got directly involved in politics. 
What made you decide to run for mayor of New York several years ago? And uh, you've indicated there may be one more campaign left in you. What made you take the plunge? Why did you want to become the Fiorello LaGuardia, great New York mayor of the 21st century? I love New York City. New York City made a big difference in my life. And I ran uh, the same way uh, Rudy Giuliani run, ran, John Lindsay ran, uh, Blumberg ran as a Republican liberal. Even though I had been a Democrat for a little while, because you live in New York City, you got to be a Democrat to do business. And uh, Bill Clinton was, uh, I, was, I admired him, I, and I did a lot of work for Bill Clinton in the 1990s. Um, but I ran as a Republican liberal, pro-business, pro-people, but the liberal side helping the kids of the inner city just like Mr. Morgenthau taught me, and that we had to work hard to give those kids a better education and make sure they all have big brothers or whatever is needed to make a better life for them. Um, I ran for the Republican nomination. I lost because Rudy Giuliani supported his old deputy mayor, Joe Loda, and I wasn't running against Joe, who's a fine gentleman. I was actually running against Rudy. My mistake, maybe I should have ran on the liberal side and between Loda and me and de Blasio on the Democratic side, who knows what would have happened. One of the ideas you had when you were running for mayor was what you call upzoning. You pointed out the transit system is worth a trillion dollars. Why not upzone the real estate around near a train station and use that to help vitalize the city? People didn't, didn't realize the value. The subway system we have, it would cost a trillion dollars to replace it. So my recommendation was the same way it worked out on Myrtle Avenue. Myrtle Avenue, there's three different subway systems running within three or four blocks from Myrtle, or Myrtle Avenue development. You take areas in the Bronx or in Queens or in Brooklyn and you upzone. That means you can build them higher and the people that live there have access to the subway system and they can go for their jobs in any borough in the city except Staten Island. Uh, I, had a, I had a plan for Staten Island, too. Uh, upzoning and transit-oriented development was very important. So people live near a subway system. They can go to work any place in the city. And my idea on Staten Island, but I didn't become mega, was use the Verrazano Bridge and put sidecars lightweight titanium or aluminum sidecars to connect into the subway system or the transit system of Staten Island and Brooklyn and make Staten Island part of the five boroughs. Great idea. And uh, perhaps uh, someday soon uh, you may be able to bring it to uh, fruition. In addition to foreseeing what was going to happen with Brooklyn, Coney Island, you also said several years ago, one on energy, business you know something about. You said in 2013 we'd be energy independent by 2020. You're right on that. 
You also uh, pointed out that uh, two great areas of New York several years ago, Astoria and Long Island City, and Amazon saw what you saw. Now, one of the things that you've always emphasized is the need for middle-class rents, rents that middle-class people can afford. What do you see for the future of New York now, with all this talk of reintroducing rent control and just going back in the old treadmill? I think there's, there's a lousy system. Uh, there's an there's underground uh, poison going through our political system. And it, it's very dangerous. There's no checks and balances on, uh, uh, on what's going on in Albany or New York City. And our people with a few dollars to invest are choosing to leave New York City and invest it in states where they're not taxed, overtaxed. Uh, I remember those words, taxation without representation. And you have, and I'm not against Democrats, but you have a tr Democratic ex executive officers, you have Democratic uh, uh, state senate, Democratic state assembly, Democratic city council. And it seems like that the people getting elected are the people that want to give away everything. And they get elected easier in their response. Let's give them, you know, two cars in every garage. Or let's give them whatever. But nobody, all these people, that, a lot of these people that are running, you wouldn't let them run your local supermarket. There's, some of them are really dumb. And, uh, you know, and if you won't let them run a supermarket, you're letting them run billions and billions and billions of dollars of the economy. And there's got to be, look, we had Bloomberg for 12 years. Do I agree with everything he did? No. But he had common sense, and he did the right thing for the citizens of New York. Rudy Giuliani, eight years. But now we are going backwards a little bit. And uh, the uh, extreme left is, is, is taking over the Democratic Party. And even the moderate Democrats, who are, a lot of them are decent people, are scared of being thrown out. So we, we have a challenge. And somebody with strength and during the next election has to stand up and say, enough, enough is enough. We're taking New York City back. Is that going to be you? You haven't made. Well, I hope up. we find somebody younger and better. But uh, I'm still younger than uh, Donald Trump, so uh, you never know. We'll see. I think they'd have a hard time finding somebody who knows the city as well as you and has the executive experience that you've had. So uh, you have your older, your daughter, your oldest child is taking on the difficult task of being uh, heading up the Manhattan Republican Party. And she's also vice chairperson of the uh, New York State Party. Uh, and uh, she grew up, and I, I, I scare her sometimes, she's holding a Clinton-Gore sign when she was two years old, because I just got back from the convention. So she grew up as a Democrat, but learned that having common sense and being a Republican might be better. You, you brought her up well. One well, Hillary supported Goldwater. <laughs> that, uh, she, she peaked early. Yes. <laughs> so uh, in terms of uh, 
the future. You you run for mayor, but you still stay involved. You started a radio show, a podcast called uh, Cats Roundtable. Uh, describe that, and uh, I guess that ties into your uh, WABC acquisition. Well, you're, I, you're communicating. When I ran for mayor, uh, even though I did not become mayor, uh, my popularity rate was in the 60s. So I said, I want to stay in touch with the public. So I started my own Sunday morning radio show uh, to communicate with the public. Uh, 8.30 to 9 o'clock was local, and 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock was national. And on our national show, we have, we have to tell the truth. We have senators, we have congresspeople, we have uh, secretaries of state, et cetera, et cetera, that talk to, and my system, I have Democrats and Republicans, and my system is to give the people a chance to tell and say what they want to say and not to ask them questions where I'll force them into maybe lying to you. So you want to get information. I want the information. I want the people of our country to hear the information and to listen uh, and make up their own minds. And then I had my other uh, subjects. I love talking about medicine. So we either have a medical program talking about new developments in medicine every week, or we have a, a show on animals. I love animals. I believe that you know, we have to work hard to make sure our animals survive, our elephants in, in Africa. Uh, and uh, uh, it's important to me. Our whales also talk about our kids. We talk about charities, all of the above. And it makes a well-rounded uh, Sunday morning uh, radio show where you, if you're drinking your, your coffee, you can get to like it. One thing before letting you go, uh, you know, your supermarkets are 2% of your uh, business now. Uh, but uh, when Whole Foods came along, which you pointed out is nicknamed Whole Paycheck, one of the things you did to compete was uh, describe how you brought in fresh foods but charged less. Well, we, you know, the purpose of a supermarket is to have a wide, a wide variety of, of products, not just Whole Foods products. When Whole Foods first opened, they wouldn't carry Pepsi-Cola or Coca-Cola or any normal product. And we carried the whole thing. And then we started carrying organic foods, uh, fresh fruits, uh, organic meats, uh, organic uh, dairy. And our organic sales over the last five years has quadrupled. And uh, it gives the American consumer a choice that you could buy organic foods or you could buy the normal food. And being in the supermarket business, I'm going to say something nobody wants to hear, but I'm going to say it anyway, that the large national companies, when you buy it, watch out. Look at the ingredients, because what the large national companies worry about, how good does it taste, and how long is it going to last on the shelf? If you die from it, you're collateral damage. Wow. Final question. Is America still the land of opportunity that it was for you? 
I think America is still the land of opportunity. You got to work harder at it. And uh, uh, I remember some of the uh, things I say to kids when I talk to them or address them. You, you approach it, failure is not an option. You, if you want to work eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, don't go into business. If you want to work 100 hours a week, you can go into business with the attitude, failure is not an option. If I have to work 110 hours, I'll do that 110 hours. And you have to be able to dedicate yourself. I think Lincoln would approve. John, thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me on, and we'll catch up again real soon. Look forward to it. Thank you. And now, my reads of the week. The first one is called Stable Value is Our Monetary Goal, Not Stable Prices. It's written by Nathan Lewis, Forbes.com. He's an expert on monetary policy better than anyone I know. And he makes the point, prices go up and down in response to the marketplace. That shouldn't be a government policy of trying to manipulate prices. What the government should do is make sure the dollar is stable and trustworthy and all will be well, or much will be well. But Washington being what it is, the Fed being what it is, they can't leave well enough alone. Good short piece, everyone can grasp it, understand it, except those who are in the Federal Reserve. The second piece is called Hong Kong is a Flashpoint in the New Cold War, written by Gideon Rackman at FT.com, Financial Times, FT.com. It gets to the point that this situation is getting more ominous and serious. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.